Welcome to Holy Trinity Sunday. Some of you guys are like, wait, I don't, didn't know, I didn't get that memo. Check your app. It'll tell you on your lectionary app. Most significant days in the church calendar, which I love to observe, are based on actual happenings from the life of Jesus. Think about his birth, or his baptism, or his resurrection, or when he was presented in the temple. Most of them are rooted in the happenings of his life. And then there are days like today, days set aside to celebrate our doctrines. You might think of these, as the, these days as anniversaries, anniversaries of the time that we finally got our ideas all straightened out, except we actually haven't. Ideas evolve over time, as you know. And I'm not like other pastors. I don't think that the technical precision of our beliefs matter as much as the posture of our hearts, the humility with which we seek answers to the important and universal questions. That's what I think matters the most, which makes days like today a little bit awkward for me, if I'm honest. These aren't days for us to crow about our beliefs, the beliefs that we espouse, but rather to think about them again. And I would, some, I would just offer you that invitation today to consider things like the Trinity again, to consider them in fresh ways. These are days that we chart evolution of these ideas, value their historic iterations, their, understand their built-in limits and their language and their description while remaining curious and kind towards others, including those who don't profess to be Trinitarian, that we love so much to just make cartoons of and hate church in, in terms of church history. These are days to hold our conclusions with open hands, hold them loosely, not attach them to the moving part of the gospel, but to understand them as models that they are. The truth is, it isn't actually easy to find anywhere in our text sort of to locate a conversation around the Holy Trinity because it's not even an idea that appears in the Bible. It doesn't turn up for four centuries after the Bible is compiled. Nonetheless, the lectionary in her wisdom directs our attention today to John 16. And so let me read this little passage. It's, it's a short one. Now this would be Jesus speaking to his disciples and you can pick up from the text here that there's some importance in the air. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, says Jesus, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, and Jesus spent a lot of time talking about what would come after, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And you can almost hear Jesus trying to make a marketing leap saying, if you trust me, you can trust the one that's coming behind me. You see what I'm saying? If I am trustworthy, then you can trust. He's not going to say new things. He's going to reiterate what I'm telling you. And you can see Jesus making this case. All that the father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, you can tell by the feel of this text that Jesus is putting some last things in order with his friends before leaving. He's essentially preparing them to turn him loose, as Stan likes to say, encouraging them that in time they would need to know more, but for the moment, at least, this is about as much as they would be able to bear. Well, now, the word Trinity shows up exactly zero times in your text and in mine, so what we're left with are a few encounters like this one today where Jesus speaking speaks about the Spirit and speaks about the Father in a single scene. My personal favorite example of when he does that would be at the baptism of Jesus, but that's a different feast and that comes early in winter and that's for a different day. The doctrine of the tr Trinity develops over time as a way to affirm the uniqueness of the way God that was uniquely in Christ, while not messing too much with the view of God that predates Jesus in the Judaic or in the, in the Jewish cosmology. You see, Jesus never stopped talking about the Father, as well as something or someone referred to as the Spirit, be it the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth. Jesus never stops talking about the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit that would follow, which meant 
that now we have no less than three unique entities that have to somehow fit into one. It's really the evolution around our claims about Jesus, the man that the doctrine of the Trinity gives voice to over time. But don't forget, and I want you to hang on to this, it is only a model. It is only a model. For whatever reason related to the history of the ancient world, it seemed important to the early Christians, Jesus' friends, to be able to say, we are not really Jewish anymore, but we're still monotheists who believe in one God. So how do they do that with three different entities to account for? Well, the short answer is they just tinker with the math. That's what all of us non-math majors do, right? They just tinker with the numbers. The friends of Jesus wanted to be able to say that, we're, that they still believed in one God, but how could they do it now? How could they do that and affirm Jesus' divinity as well as this other person he never stops talking about called the Spirit? How could they consolidate belief around Jesus while not threatening the monotheistic core of their Jewish cosmology? Now, don't forget, to the friends of Jesus, these were all fluid ideas still, and you can track in our texts different ways of voicing this. They hadn't yet coalesced on how to say it. God as Trinity wouldn't come together as a formal dogma or doctrine until four centuries later, at least not entirely. And even when it does, it doesn't make a ton of sense, if you ask me. Friends, the fact is, not all of Jesus' friends even believed that he was divine. The Old Testament said nothing of Jesus, not directly anyway. Sure, I'm aware that many portions of the New Testament sure seem to argue that Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, but that is, if you're honest, a bit of theological construction that's born of a collective effort mostly headed up by Paul to elevate Jesus to godlike status. The fact remains, the Old Testament is mostly unaware of Jesus. Those prophecies in the ancient in the ancient Jewish texts, they spoke of kings and warriors and prophets and liberators sent from God. And even in the case of Isaiah, maybe the most important of them all, the prophet most uh, affiliated with speaking messianic things about Jesus, even in the case of Isaiah, he was prophesying about the liberation of a country that was in, Bab in, in, in exile. He was speaking about real powers, earthly powers. Which I know, let's pause for a second, this is a big thought. You're not used to having a preacher put his fingers between the old and new and kind of pull at that a little bit. I know this is a big thought for us, but just for a second, can we Christians acknowledge how offensive it is to graft onto a totally Jewish text our Jesus-centric understanding about, of its supposed fulfillment? We think their text, you know, the Torah and some poetry and some history and some wisdom books, we think their text whispers directly to us about what we value, about who we worship, often without acknowledging how much we have to stretch and ignore to make their sacred text say what we think it needs to say to us. And sometimes I think that the work of ecumenical things would just be so much better if we would just acknowledge this. We take their text places that it was never going to go. We do it because of the way we see Jesus anyway. Trinitarian doctrine is our best attempt to remain monotheistic while clearly acknowledging the divinity of Jesus and accounting for that other entity that Jesus always spoke about called the Holy Spirit. Now, let's do a little history here. It's summertime. We can do a little thinking. Most of our classes are, are done for the summer. Let me quickly get to the bottom of how this sloppy story brings us to the point in history where we are today. Now listen, during the time of the writing of the New Testament, systems based in animal sacrifice and blood offerings to appease angry deities were still a thing. They were still around. 
Therefore, the notion that Jesus had to die as a substitutionary replacement for us, it made a certain amount of sense to the friends of Jesus at the time. So thinking about Jesus as some kind of sacrifice became part of mainstream Christian thought for a hot minute, but it wasn't long until animal or blood sacrifices as a basis of religious devotion, it wasn't long until it begins to fall out of favor. So understanding Jesus as some kind of blood offering started to make less sense and less sense over time. It was an idea that was starting to fall away from the center of the mainstream. But you know how the church can be. We gather all the time to decide what we're going to decide and how we're going to decide it and how we might decide it in the future. And the church doesn't often let go of a thing once it locks on. So the church ups the ante as society begins to question the logic of an angry, bloodthirsty God. The church formalizes her doctrines in the form of creeds and says, oh, by the way, hell will be the just reward for anyone who doesn't believe exactly the way we do about this particular thing. Don't worry if animal sacrifice isn't part of your culture or your consciousness or your experience. God loves you so much that he'll send you to burn forever in hell for not believing all this strangeness. Forget the fact that it seems illogical and even absurd. God murders God's own son to pay for a sin that that son did not commit. And if you don't actually accept this as a grateful gift, then you deserve hell because God is so good. You see the logic? I'm struggling at this point to see it. Of course, Jesus' friends offer us some of this language because they're trying to figure out how to speak about this event. In their stories and correspondence, we pick up hints that become doctrines later. They open the door for us because they were first century Jews, friends. They were working within the metaphors at hand, and it was still very much about some animal must spill their blood to pay for someone else's mistakes. They felt the need to explain the gore and the violent death of Jesus to Greek minds by making meaning of something that preceded them. And it was this atonement model, is what we call it, or idea that God demanded blood that eventually led to the development of the model of the Trinity. Now understand the, the history here for a second. Before the fourth century codifies language about a God that exists in three persons, there was this atonement thing and it was beginning to fall out of favor. Jesus had to be important enough for his blood to have mattered to all people in all places. So they, in the fourth century, they gather and they close the society of the Godhead. Of course, three men, of course. It had to be defined and limited. They began to close it. There could be only one God who could, nobody knows how, conceive of only one son who are both separate, yet they speak to each other, yet they're the same. Don't ask questions, you see. They could only be one God who had one son who, who sent one spirit into the world to value, so that the value of that death doesn't get diluted over time. And the church adds, if, if you don't believe this, by the way, of course you'll burn in hell forever naturally because God is love, you see which again begins to sound like utter nonsense to me. Here's the point. A model is not the same as the absolute truth about which it speaks. The Trinity was a model, okay? Born to protect atonement theory, which was beginning to fall out of favor. Now, never confuse a working model with the thing that it seeks to describe. For instance, any hard science majors in the room? I took all the soft science classes. I'm gonna take a risk here in speaking about atomic theory for a second, and I'm sure you'll correct me before I get home this afternoon. Atoms aren't really little colored balls spinning around one another. <laughs> that was a model that helped us begin to think about chemistry when we were eight. But the models that we learned in middle school aren't supposed to contain the entirety of a thing. It's the beginning of a way to think about something. 
The same is true for ancient sacred texts, if you must know. All the great writings of Christianity and Buddhism and Islam and Confucianism, and you give me any example, it will be the same. All of those great texts were written by men who had no idea where the sun went at night. Think about this. They used models and explanations that fit their understanding of the world, which still painted sea monsters at the edge of a flat earth, because how dare we think we can go beyond the edge of a flat earth. Now, that doesn't make them wrong or dumb or dense, but we have to do the work uh, to, to adapt and understand and update what those models gave to us in terms of truth. They were models, let's not forget. Atomic theory cannot be explained with little color-coded diagrams from middle school, and the nature of God cannot be fully explained by the tradition of any one religion with nuanced language formulations around which she's willing to excommunicate, if not murder, anyone who disagrees even slightly. Any attempt whatsoever to nail down the de definition of God is ill-fated, much like trying to nail smoke to the rafter of your house. Can't be done. This is why, to me, the Trinity is dangerous. Now, it's helpful, that's true, but it is also no, by no means exhaustive or complete. How could it be? It was conceived, let me remind you, by men who had no idea where the sun went at night. Now, this doesn't mean that we reject our faith or what it gave us or the things it taught us. It doesn't mean we reject the teachings that we were passed down. It means that we hold them loosely, open-heartedly, and open-handedly. And I have finally convinced my word processor to allow me to write that word open-handedly without trying to correct me. You know, you can wear them down over time if you tell them just to accept the same word. You guys figured this out, right? Yeah, I figured it out too. Maybe we'll find some rest finally as people of faith, as Christians, when we stop trying to regulate and police how people think about God. Sometimes I get quiet when I want you to really listen in. How other people define meaning and purpose. You see, we can love the way we arrived at meaning for ourselves. I deeply love my tradition, but I can do that while stopping just short of claiming that my way of seeing the world is the only true version of reality. When we try to put language around the nature of God, we invariably end up revealing more about what we cannot know than the things that we can. The moment a new metaphor emerges, it seems that, if, it seems that in the very shadow of that new metaphor, new ignorance emerges too. But still we try, don't we? We still do our best to speak of a God in ways that move and, and shape and open and mold us, but mystery remains, friends, as it should. Mystery is persistent no matter what you were taught on flannel graphs in church basements with very low quality coffee in styrofoam cups and fluorescent light, just to paint you the full picture. But we can't help ourselves, can we? We can't help ourselves. We're meaning makers, meaning makers whose brains are built and literally assembled by the use of language and symbol and ideation. We're meaning makers, it's who we are, and because of that, we're never done questioning. Why should we be? So I ask us this question today. Are we still terrified of being labeled with polytheists? Do we still have to rely on funny math to maintain our credibility among the world's great respectable monotheists? Have we made the connection that purity, right, of thought will inevitably become the sole obsession of all things monotheistic? Why? Because we will need to struggle to keep it pure. We will need to crush anything that threatens it. It's the outcome of all things that see the world one way. Have we thought about that? Here's the question as plainly as I might state it for us regarding the Trinity. 
Do we believe in a single force that creates, redeems, and sustains? Do we still think something was lost in such a way that required something else to be murdered in order to reinstate that thing that was lost? Am I asking too many questions, friends? <laughs> How about this? Is there still value in thinking of God as a, as a person? Isn't that how we ended up with assigning gender to God? How helpful was that in the end? By claiming that God is person, don't we open as many cans of worms as we shut? How about now, friend? Am I asking too many questions now? Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the questions, they never stop. They're like the tides of the ocean, the changing of the season. They're like the tree rings that precede. They're like the rising of the sun. They just keep coming. Barbara Brown Taylor, probably the single most important influence on my writing, my reading, my preaching, my teaching. She writes this in a collection of sermons that she put together years ago called Home by Another Way. She writes, who are all these people? How can God the Father be his own son? And if Jesus is God, then who is he talking to? And where does the Holy Spirit come in? Is that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, or someone else altogether? If they're all one, she writes, then why do we come and go? Why do they come and go at different times? And how can one of them send the other one of them? She goes on, there are orthodox answers to all of these questions, but I never entirely understood any of them. I accept them as earnest human efforts, as models, to describe something that cannot ever be described, which is the nature of God. We would probably be better off if we just left that whole subject alone. <laughs> But if you have ever lain on your back looking up at the summer night sky full of stars, then you know how hard that is to do. It's in our nature, friend, to wonder and to question and to probe. And we do that with language and theology and ideas and models. And that sometimes helps almost, almost as much as it hinders. The truth is, my friend, I don't think we actually function as monotheists as much as we love that title. Despite our claims, you see, we've borrowed the stories of an origin of another faith system, Judaism, and on it we've grafted our story of, the, of Jesus, and we've rearranged the cardinal points of Judaism in such a way that sort of makes Jesus the point of all of their texts, and when we're done, because being polytheists apparently is super scary, we just tweak the math to make it work. This is how three is one. <laughs> Don't worry. Never fear. To say otherwise will get you shunned and tarred and feathered. So the church must be right, because she's screaming this at us. Because men of the ancient world said so. The same men who thought the earth was flat and that there were three levels to creation. These guys gave us three equals one and that should be enough to put the argument to rest, shouldn't it? Well, not for me. I still wonder. Now, I love the doctrine of the Trinity because it argues for plurality and relationship within the Godhead. I love it less when it's understood as black and white, concrete, unbending word formulations that make being honest and curious a capital crime. Father, Son, Spirit, that's what we're told to believe. Essentially, a divine force that precedes all things, a force that remains close to all things, and a force that holds all things together. I can go with that. To be tri Trinitarian is to be able to say something originated all things, Father, that something was not separate from all things, Jesus, which is why we can say that that very same something still animates and infuses all things, Spirit. That works some for me. Or we could just say it this way, and this might be my favorite of all. This isn't random, God. We aren't lost, Jesus. And awareness of this is actually universal, spirit. 
Friends, of course, we see interrelationality in God. Of course, we understand God as society because we experience the same reality in ourselves. Oh, when you look inside, great curator of the persons you are, you curate a thousand generations of people down there as it comes through your lips and through your, of course, we see this in God because it's how we see ourselves. Speaking of God as Father, Son, and Spirit, as it turns out, is a decent enough place to begin. It was a wonderful first chapter in a many-chaptered book called Love. But it won't be our last chapter. It won't be our last metaphor. It won't be our last model. It doesn't need to be. It was lovely and limiting. It was helpful and harmful. But it will have all been useless if it doesn't inspire us to keep asking, keep wondering, keep laying on our backs, looking up longingly into summer evening skies full of celestial lights looking down on us, both us and those stars, both becoming, both discovering, both being redefined in the presence and consideration of the other. In conclusion, and it's, it's a real conclusion. I said in conclusion at the 9.30 and everybody laughed at me and then they weren't ready. I toy with definitions of conclusion just to keep the, the musicians on their toes. In conclusion, friend, Trinitarian doctrine must not be the last thing we say about God. It's a good place to begin. But we can move onward from there. We can go deeper and wider still. We can build new models. You see, Trinitarian theology doesn't have to do it all. But here's what it must do. No matter how we technically articulate our understanding of a three-part natured God, if it helps us account, now hear me, pay no attention to the people behind the curtain. If it helps us account for the humanity in the nature of God and the divinity in the nature of humanity, then I would say we're on track, headed in the right direction. And if that thought frightens you, take your time with it. No need to rush. I happily report to you that new models are currently under development on how we might speak, understand, and love God.